great job, guys. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We're actually going to look together at chapters 4 and 5. That may seem like a lot to you, and trust me, it feels like a lot to me. But in order for us to really see what's being expressed in, in this particular scene in the book of Revelation, we need to see these two chapters together. We might look at the setting for Revelation 4 and 5 from three different perspectives. There is the literary perspective, which we've been covering over the past several weeks. We've looked at each of Jesus's messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The situation within the church is somewhat bleak. There are positives. There are some points worthy of celebration, but the reality is that persecution is a real and present danger for the church. In fact, persecution has reached the point of martyrdom in at least one instance. Not only is there the real and present danger of suffering, persecution, and of martyrdom, but sin has made its way by influence into the life of the church. And compromise is characteristic of some of those churches, and, and they're coming under the influence of those giving themselves to ungodliness. That's sort of the literary setting. The question that results from that is, what is God going to do to rectify this situation in the church wherein the righteous are suffering and unrighteousness is prevailing? Then there's the historical perspective we might see toward the setting of Revelation 4 and 5, which is very similar to the literary setting. Domitian is ruling in Rome. Unrighteousness is the way of the day. So you have the church situated historically in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Darkness is prevailing. In fact, the darkness of the world around the church has enveloped the church. Situated there as salt and light, they are no less suffering. And so the question that results from that historical setting is what God would do in human history. How will God intervene in order to alleviate the suffering of his people? In, in order to, to take away the anguish that they're experiencing on a consistent basis in a culture, in an empire that is not friendly toward the faith where the righteous are punished and unrighteousness move ahead. What will God do in human history? Then there's a theological perspective. God in his infinite righteousness has committed himself to the church by covenant. The church is suffering. There seems to be no rhyme or reason as to why the church is suffering the way that it is. And the question that results from the theological setting is how God will keep his promises. I suppose we could ask, will God keep his promise? But I would assume that those within the body of Christ would expect that God would keep his promise. The only question left to be answered is how he will do this. And we're back to that historical question. How will God intervene in human history? How will God interject himself in the very real life experiences of those churches and the individuals that comprise those churches in order to alleviate their suffering, take away their pain, to make sure that the righteous move ahead and that the unrighteous are punished for their unfaithfulness. Revelation chapter 4 sets the stage of heaven. Chapter 5 answers this great question. Revelation chapter 4 will begin in verse 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing 
out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were in the middle and around the throne. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I cried and cried. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. One of the elders said to me, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven on earth, under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Join me in prayer. 
God, give us eyes to see the glories that these chapters hold for us. Give us ears to hear and receive well your word. Soften our hearts that we might be sensitive to the work of your Holy Spirit. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'll give you, I'll, I'll spoil it for you, and I'll tell you that the main idea of the text, the two chapters that we've just read, that's what they teach you to do in preacher school. You determine the main idea of the text. Here it is. Regardless of your issues, whatever your problems, Jesus is the answer. I know that seems really broad, really generic. We'll try to narrow that down in the time that we have together. But that really is the fundamental truth that's being expressed in such a, a beautiful, powerful way in these two chapters. Chapter 4 sets the scene of heaven for us. And chapter 5 explains how this scene answers for all of our needs. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. I'm going to say a whole lot here because the unconvinced won't be convinced, and you'll know who you are if you understand what I'm talking about here. But I want you to take note that this is not about chronology. After this, come up here, I'll show you what must take place after this, is not some veiled attempt at disclosing the chronological order of certain events in the last days. And just as a subpoint for those that have an interest in such things, that position, that interpretation of this verse never occurred in church history until well into the 1800s. You can find me an example in the early church fathers, I might get on board with that. But John never, John never concerns himself, it seems, with the chronological unfolding of the last days. That's not the purpose. In fact, there are elements of the past, the present, and the future incorporated in chapters 4 and in chapter 5. So let me just say again, this part is important. How you sort the chronology out or how you deal with interpretive issues specific to verse 1, we can talk about on another, another day. But I want you to know that the interest of Revelation is not to set for us a chronology of the unfolding of the events of the last day. In fact, if you are fixated on the days, the times, and the seasons, answers Jesus has committed himself to never provide more than you're fixated on the idea that there is coming a point in human history when God intervenes powerfully to vindicate his righteousness, to absolve the suffering of his people, you have missed the mark completely. What we have here is something that I've compared to Job chapter 1 in weeks past. Revelation 2 and 3, the situation with the church is grim. They are suffering in most instances, and Antipas has been killed. When we read Job chapter 1, we see the things happening to Job on earth, the suffering he experiences. Satan is tempting him in incredible ways. Even his family is carried away. He loses 10 children, and his wife provokes him to kill himself, to commit suicide. And then the narrator gives us insight that Job never has. We get to peer into the councils of heaven. To understand from a heavenly perspective why these things are unfolding in Job's life. Job is not privy to that information. Revelation 2 through 5 is similar to that. In the sense that now John is privileged with the ability to look into the councils of heaven. 
that he might communicate that vision to the church below, suffering under grim circumstances, that they might derive from the counsels of heaven the encouragement John first derives in a vision. It is essentially opening heaven's counsel to those of us who are here in the here and now, suffering oftentimes in great ways. A, a powerful reminder to us that God has keen interest in our well-being. He is actively in heaven, intervening and making plans to intervene, to vindicate his righteousness, to alleviate our suffering, to make right what has been so wrong. John's invitation to come up is an invitation to look into the counsels of heaven. The Bible says in verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. The, the throne image, the symbolism of the throne, is the most important symbol in all of the book of Revelation. It occurs often, and it's critically important. Because what it symbolizes is the authority, the lordship of Jesus. Much of Revelation is an answer to the political propaganda of the late first century. Political propaganda that said that Caesar is Lord. And in some strange mythology, he is the son of God. Revelation comes along to answer that political propaganda by noting that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And there is but one only begotten Son of God whose name is Jesus. This is the function of the throne in the book of Revelation. We're days away now from what has been deemed the most recent iteration of the most important election in our lifetime. They all are, right? Like that's the slogan for every election. And in the aftermath of that election, however it unfolds, roughly 50% of the country will be apoplectic about what the future holds. Oh no, we'll never make it. I got to just tell you, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future. And it has nothing to do with who will win upcoming elections or who's in the Oval Office or who's in the State House or who's on the Supreme Court. My optimism with regards to the future has everything to do with the one who is seated on the throne of heaven. I saw one on the throne, John says, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. What is all of this? Carnelian and jasper and emerald and a rainbow about the throne? You remember 30 years ago or so, and this has kind of been revived in recent years, when Bob Ross would paint on public broadcasting television? From time to time, a mistake in the foreground would turn into a happy little bush, or a mistake in the background would turn into a happy little bird. Usually, he was painting these mountain scenes. It would be a mountain in the middle of the painting, and those mistakes that turned into happy little features were there merely to accentuate the mountain scene in the middle of the portrait itself, whatever the feature of today's work of art is, those mistakes in the foreground or the background would serve to amplify the beauty of what it was that Ross wanted to communicate or make central in that particular painting. Things like this, symbolism like this, like the idea of an appearance like carnelian and jasper stone, like a rainbow that had the appearance of, of an emerald. These are here not for us to derive meaning from. 
It's not as though they bear tremendous significance in terms of interpretation. They're there in order to accentuate what is at the center of this apocalyptic masterpiece, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. They're here for us as points of reference to serve as indicators as to the glory of the one who is seated on the throne. It's not carnelian or emerald or jasper stone that bears import in our passage. It is that Jesus is on the throne, that the Father is on the throne, and he bears such great glory and splendor that John is grasping for these precious earthly elements as points of reference to say that his glory is greater even than that. Verse 4, the Bible says, around that throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. It's customary that numbers would be used in apocalyptic literature. It doesn't matter what you read in apocalyptic. It always includes the symbolism of numbers. The very verse that we just read spoke of the seven spirits, which is just a symbolic way of saying the fullness of the spirit. Over in chapter five, Jesus is described as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the spirits of God. That is not to say that Jesus has literal horns or that Jesus literally has seven eyes. It is to say that Jesus bears perfect power and that Jesus is all seeing and that the fullness of God's spirit emanates from the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. This is the way numbers in apocalyptic usually function. However, the number 24 is unusual. You won't find 24 anywhere else in apocalyptic literature as a symbolic number. Here, I believe it's operating as the composite of the 12 tribal heads of Israel and the 12 apostles sent out, commissioned and sent out by Jesus. Together it stands as the symbol of the people of God under the old covenant and the people of God under the new covenant. When those 24 elders are gathered about the throne of the Father, what's being pictured is that all of the people of God are before the throne of God, worshiping Him eternally. Verse 6, the Bible says, something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. This, this sea imagery is fascinating to me. I think you see it from Genesis to the end of Revelation. Sea symbolizes, it's a way of expressing with a sign, evil. For instance, in Revelation 21, at the back of the book, when John sees the new heaven and the new earth, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her groom, one of the features of that place that John notes for us is that there was no more sea. The purpose is not to say there are no beaches in heaven. The purpose is to say that the sea... The symbol for evil and the chaos and the conflict that results from evil have been eradicated in the new heaven and the new earth. That there would be here a sea before the throne that was as glass is a way of symbolizing the fact that God has subdued evil beneath his feet. There's some symbolic significance in the reality that Jesus was in the boat with those disciples when it was tossed on wind and wave. The disciples believed themselves to be on the verge of death. 
Jesus stands in their midst and says to wind and wave, peace and be still. A not so subtle symbolic reminder, even within his earthly ministry, that the powers of evil are well beneath the feet of Jesus. Continuing in verse 6, this is perhaps the stranger part of our passage. The Bible says, four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were in the middle and around the throne. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. John is drawing on the symbols and images used in Ezekiel chapter 1, which is another image, another vision of God in the fullness of his glory. The same creatures, essentially the same creatures referenced in verses 7 and 8 are referenced in Ezekiel chapter 1. The way John is grabbing at symbols and images suggests to me a measure of freedom under the inspiration of the Spirit to grab at whatever resource John might find in order to communicate the grandness, the splendor of this vision he had only now received. The function of these animals, these living creatures in verses 7 and 8 is roughly the same as in Ezekiel 1. For example, the lion is the king of the jungle, the apex predator. He seems to stand as the figurehead for all of those creatures like him. The second living creature is like a calf or like an oxen, which is the strongest of those beasts of the field. And he seems to stand as something of the figurehead for those creaturely animals of the field. The flying eagle is sort of the apex predator of the sky, he seems to stand as the chief of flying creatures, and man is the crowning achievement of God's active creation, one made even after his own image. When the Bible speaks of these four living creatures coming before the throne, what's being described is a scenario in which the very creatures of the earth are worshiping God on the throne. So thus far in our passage, this is the scene. Those 24 elders symbolize the people of God, past, present, and future, old covenant and new covenant. All of the people of God are gathered around the throne of God. And all of the creatures of the earth have now assembled themselves before the throne to worship the God who made them even as they are. It's a strange but moving scene. It's like something out of the Chronicles of Narnia. This is, this is the real life acting out of what Jesus foretold when he made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. The children cried, Hosanna to God in the highest. They worshipped. The Pharisees sought to stop them. And Jesus warned, you may hush the mouths of these children, but should you, even the very rocks would cry out and worship the only begotten Son of God. At the sight of God, in the fullness of His glory, the birds of the air and the beast of the earth and even the fish of the sea celebrate the greatness of our God. They're joined together in the chorus of praise coming forth from the people of God. Remainder of verse 8 says, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God, the Almighty who was, who is, and who's coming. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you've created all things and because of your will, they exist and were created. This is the scene. If we're watching a movie... We've been introduced to the setting in which the unresolved tension of the previous, previous episode is about to be resolved. The questions generated in the previous episode are about to find their solution, their resolution, their answer in what inf- unfolds now in chapter 5. Remember, those questions are these. How and when will God intervene in human history in order to rectify our situation, to take away our suffering, to make right what is wrong? Will God keep his promise toward his people? Will he vindicate his righteousness? Will he remove our suffering? Will he attend to our need? The answer comes in the first few verses of chapter 5. The Bible says here, I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, the father seated on the throne, I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside, on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now the idea of a scroll in the right hand of the father seated on the throne may not resonate powerfully with you, but it would have in a first century context, and it certainly seemed to resonate with John. John understands the critical importance of the content of that scroll so powerfully that when the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll, he cries and cries at the realization that until this point, no one has been identified who is worthy to open that scroll. The image of a scroll in this context communicates judgment. It communicates the reality that God has justice. God has a decree for his people in order to move against their enemies and in order to move on their behalf. The scroll says God has a plan. The scroll says God will intervene in human history. The scroll says God will alleviate our suffering. The scroll says God will make right what has been made so wrong. You have examples of a scroll being used in order to communicate the idea of justice being served and judgment coming. For instance, in Ezekiel 2 and verse 10, the Bible says, When he unrolled the scroll before me, it was written on the front and the back. Words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written upon it. Scrolls indicate that judgment is coming. And for those who have been under the oppressive thumb of the oppressor, the oppressor who is about to receive justice and judgment. This is a message of comfort for those who have been suffering. It may not seem like God's most endearing quality that he would move in judgment against your enemies. But I suspect that's only because we've been programmed in a certain way to not relish judgment and justice the way we might have been programmed from the heart of God. This morning, very early, very early, very, very early, my three-year-old Bo was telling me the story of David and Goliath. And here's what he said. 
He said, God hit that giant with a rock because he's a sweet boy and he wants us to be sweet boys too. And that's sort of a theological interpretation of God's activity in the life of David. It was David who threw the rock, but in his theological assessment, it was God who hit that giant with a rock because God is, after all, a sweet boy, and he wants us to be sweet boys too. In his little three-year-old imagination, he saw the justice of God serving the benevolent purpose of God in the life of David and the lives of others and as a representation of his inherent goodness as a sweet boy, God of heaven. That's about as good as you can describe or a good, uh, an adjective as you can assign to God if you're a three-year-old boy with a fascination with David and Goliath. The fact that God has a scroll in his hand is the assurance for us that he will intervene in human history, that he has a decree for us, that he will work and move on our behalf, alleviating our suffering and making right what has been so wrong. But the disclosure that this scroll exists only creates for us another problem. Because someone has to open the scroll. And the angel informs John that they've yet to find one worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. In fact, in verse 3, he says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I cried and I cried, John said, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look within it. Problem one, what will God do and when will God do it? Problem three comes after our coming to know that God has a plan. It's just that we need someone to get into the book. Who is worthy to get into the book? Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. The message of our text is that he is worthy. The answer to all our problems is Jesus. Again, that's kind of a broad, generic statement, but that is the message. What will God do? Well, we know he has a plan because there's a scroll, but who in the world can open it? And there is but one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who is worthy to take the scroll and to unfurl its judgments and decrees, and his name is Jesus. One like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures takes the scroll. Verse 8, the Bible says, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will, they will reign on the earth. John goes on in verse 11 to say, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. That's an apocalyptic way of saying there's a whole bunch of people there. And they sang with a loud voice. The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. To those first century saints, suffering under the very circumstances we've investigated together, Jesus was the answer to all their problems. And to us this morning, gathered as the body of Christ in a 21st century context, with problems and difficulties and challenges that could have never been imagined in that first century setting, Jesus is the answer to all our issues and challenges. There are no qualifications here. There are no exceptions. He and he alone is worthy to take and to open the scroll, to unlock the decrees of God for our life, the mediator through whom the promises of God will be kept. He is the yes and the amen to all the promises of God. The danger for us with a passage like this is that we would so generalize this main idea that Jesus is our answer. That it wouldn't have the bearing in our life that I believe this passage intends it will have. So let's try to draw this down for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you don't know God, maybe even in some cases where you think you do but you don't, you just assumed that you're a Christian because you've got Christian friends or you believe in the existence of God or something really superficial like that. The answer to your sin issue, a yet unresolved answer to your sin issue, is Jesus. The realization that God has loved us so much that he sent his only son free of sin, that he would die on the cross as our substitute, be raised again on the third day. And that even at the sacrifice of his own life's blood, towards sinners, he is gentle and lowly of heart inviting even those who crucified him to come to him in faith and repentance and to find the forgiveness of sin and the grace that can only be found in him. Jesus is your answer. There are no doubt some here who are sin sick. When I say sin sick, I mean that you're sinning habitually and you're sick of it. You've come to a place in your life where you really would wish to do somewhat different. You want to do better than you currently do. You don't have the ability to do that. It's just a reality of who we are. We're like a dog returning to its vomit. We go back again and again and again. But the beauty of the gospel and the invitation of Jesus is to come to him. Coming to him brings with it the promise of empowerment by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we come to Jesus, he promises to come to us in his spirit, empowering and enabling us to be obedient in ways you don't have the capacity to obey. God has called you to do something you cannot do on your own. The good news is if you would come to him and receive him in the gospel, he will enable you then to do what he has required of you to do. It's a beautiful thing. Some of you are seeking pleasure and satisfaction and joy and in the stuff of this world. Maybe even as believers, you've convinced yourself that being a nominal Christian over the course of your life will get you into heaven. And perhaps you can have your cake and eat it too in the here and now, indulging in the passing pleasures of life in a sin-sick world. 
And listen, and, and, until you come to the realization that Jesus is the answer to this continual thirst of soul, that only Jesus can satisfy the hunger of your eternal heart, you will forever find yourself kicking against the goads, moving from one painful experience to the next in the hopes that the next endeavor will bring you the joy, the peace, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that you've been looking for for all your life. I don't know how much stronger I can commend him to you or how many ways I can say to you there are no exceptions or qualifications. Regardless of where you find yourself, whatever your point of frustration, however you've endeavored recently to find joy and peace and satisfaction, it will only leave you bitter and jaded and frustrated in the end because Jesus is the answer. Try him. Test him. And see, for some of you, you've tried everything known to man to find peace and joy and satisfaction and, and a sense of, sense of value, sense of worth. I really believe, given my background, that if there were a way to find joy and lasting happiness outside of Jesus, I would have found it. Because I, I, I tried. I didn't know that's what I was up to. I was just trying to indulge the lust of the flesh. But, but I, I'm, I'm strongly inclined to think... I would have probably unearthed or discovered something in those wilderness wandering years that would have brought some sense of lasting satisfaction. But my final uh, discovery, the discovery that completely changed my life was that what I had been looking for, even when I knew not what I was looking for, could only be found in Jesus. And I would invite you this morning, regardless of where you are or what's up in your life, I don't, I don't know. But I know that this broad and generic principle eventually finds its way into the specific circumstances of your life, that Jesus is the answer to all our issues. You can kick against the goads of that reality this morning if you like, but again, you'll only find yourself jaded and frustrated and unfulfilled in the end. The sooner and the more hastily you make your way to the Lord Jesus Christ to find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in him, the sooner you can shortcut the jaded and frustrated years after years after years of coming up empty, drinking from broken cisterns, eating what cannot satisfy, indulging the lust of the flesh only to find, your, find yourself broken, sick, suffering in the end. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Some of you have tried everything. You've done lots of stuff. you tried lots of stuff. And you still convince yourself that you can find it in some way outside of Jesus. Why don't you try him? Try him in this. Throw yourself entirely on the message of the gospel at the foot of the cross. Find rest in him. Just see if he doesn't begin to put together some of the pieces of your life. Change circumstances in a way that are just beautiful, powerful. I'm not suggesting to you that putting out the fleece is what God recommends that we do, but I would acknowledge that there are times when in our infantile faith, God would condescend to accommodate our foolishness and to prove himself worthy of our trust. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for this passage, and the powerful truth that it conveys. God, I, I pray that you would attend the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit, that you would help us, Lord, to discern that indeed Christ is the yes and amen to all the promises of God, the answer to all of our issues, Lord. And I pray 
that you would create in us this morning an impulse to worship you, even as angels and creatures and the people of God worship in our passage. Move us, draw us to yourself magnetically, God, that we would worship you in a way that brings you great honor and glory. Draw us to yourself not only in worship, but in salvation. Draw us to yourself, not just in salvation, but in sanctification. Make us holy, even as you are holy. Lord, may your will be done in the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.